Do you have a story to tell? Yes, I have a story to tell. Do you want to be heard? Yes, I want to be heard. Do you want to say your name? Yes, that's an Aubrey. Do you want to say your age? Yes, I'm 37. Do you want to say which pronoun you use to identify yourself? Yes, he, him. Do you want to say where you grew up? Yes, mostly in Cedar Hill, Missouri, USA. Cece, thank you for uh, thank you for coming to uh, this podcast. I know you're someone who's very involved in general, but um, it's always appreciated when you invest your time and energy for the projects that are going on around. Thank you for that. Oh, thanks for having me. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Good. It's Friday. Feel good. <laughs> Not only is it Friday, <laughs> it's the last Friday of the year. Yeah. Um, pretty happy. I feel I feel pretty good about that. Although it's also a goodbye <laughs> for to some people and yeah, for me included. Um, how about we do a, a check-in, which we do in uh, each episode, just to get the, the feel of how our guests are. So the, the check-in is sharing a plus and a minus of the last day, last week, or in, in your life in general. Mm. Uh, saying a highlight and a low light, as comfortable as you are. Okay. Uh, start with the low light is the last week of school, so just busy. Lots of things to get in, lots of things that are forgotten, kind of just like a rush to get everything in order, uh, which can be kind of like stressful, not knowing what's up or what's down, what's been done, what's still left to do. Uh, so that's been a little bit of a low light. Uh, for a highlight, um, yeah, yesterday I was looking for some new music and an artist that I recently found this year that I really liked. I found a new song by them. It was really good, so that made me feel good and I had like a nice little boost of energy yesterday by listening to that on repeat like five times in a row mm. so that was good do you want to share which artist yeah it's Antoha MC Antoha MC uh, from Russia, Russia. Yeah, yeah the yeah, Russian yeah. guy so I, I've been listening to his songs a lot this year but he had a new one that came out a couple months ago but somehow it slipped my my feed and I just found it and it's really cool because it's like he's in a studio and it's just like all white and just like a microphone hanging down and he does his normal like awkward rapping style and then he does his little like awkward dancing and he plays trumpet at the end. It was just very much like an wow. Antoha MC video. And I don't know what it is about this guy's music, but it's just, I really like it. Like it's just really catchy and it's a little bit offbeat. He's not even that great of a singer, I guess, but just it all comes together and it makes you feel really good. It, when I, so um, when the first time I, I heard Antoha MC was uh, when you shared it on manta radio mm -hmm. if you don't mind me saying sure. <laughs> so yeah you're you're running the project of manta radio at the school and um you put that song in and it just feels good like the it as the song starts it feels good i think it's bab key the, the name yeah, of yeah. the song and but it's true that the voice there's something not off about it just like um for me it's just new mm. i never heard that kind of voice which seems uh, unfinished in the development yeah. of the voice. Yeah. 
and but the flow is there and he sings at the same time and it's hip-hop and yeah there's a it's unique yeah i think more i was thinking about it like it's like in portuguese desafinado like like out of tune like bossa nova when bossa mm. nova first came out and astru gilberto was like the first female singer and she would sing a little bit and she knew english so they had her sing because her husband was the the guitarist and he would she would sing the songs but she was always a little bit out of tune but somehow it made the style like that one mm -hmm. little kind of like error, if you want to call it that in her right. voice made it become like this distinct thing. Um, and I noticed that with Antoha MC and also like just, he does everything like nobody else is a part of the process. So okay. he creates the beat, he wow. sings the songs and he plays the trumpet and he edits it all together. And he does that all like in his apartment by himself. And he's a very quiet kind of like, um, introverted guy. So when I found that out watching this documentary, it made me like him more because he doesn't have a team making this. Mm -hmm. It's like him privately making it for his own taste. And I think that's really cool. So cool. Respect, man. Yeah. Respect to Antoha MC. Um, thanks for sharing that. And I'll put the link in the, oh, yeah. in the Every, description. Everybody's listening to Antoha MC. Right. <laughs> Cheers. So, Cece, mm -hmm. how does your story start? Oh, my story starts. My story starts with a Midwestern white woman from the United States going to Brazil as a Baptist missionary and meeting a mestizo Paraguayan guy who was there for university and they had a small little like affair or fling and then I'm the result of that. So that's kind of like where my story starts. Um, them being, them meeting in Brazil and my parents being from different cult cultures and countries, not speaking the same language, <laughs> you know, mm. uh, they were like it was a short affair but they did not speak the same language all of this kind of started a ball rolling that becomes who I am today as a person. Um, having to have this mixture of these three countries is very poetic in the beginning uh, because I continue to mix cultures as I age as well. Um, it's also very funny that like I was born in June, so I'm a Gemini, I'm binational, biracial. Um, I just find mm. that very kind of poetic, mm -hmm. nice little start. Um, and then, yeah, so... My mom went back to the United States. I was born. I grew up in outside of St. Louis, where the suburbs meet the countryside, in a very small town called Cedar Hill, which is like, I don't know, a thousand people, thousand two hundred people, Dude, something like that. Oh. Not very big, uh, and it's just where the suburbs taper off into the countryside. Uh, I was the only minority there as a kid growing up. There weren't other minorities until I got to high school, um, and even then, it was like there's three or four of us out of like 2000 in our, our graduating class. Um, four. Yeah, yeah like four, 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 four minorities, right? And there were some other ones who were like half, kind of like me, but maybe weren't so proud of it or weren't so aware of it. And so they would just pass as white. So a lot of my growing up was knowing that I was different around every a bunch of people that were the same and not really knowing how I was different because I was raised by my mom. But inside the house, my mom had tons of books and movies and music and things from Brazil. And so because the outside world, I didn't understand it, and there was other stuff inside the house that was different, I automatically went to that. So as a kid, I was always reading Portuguese, even though I couldn't read it. I was always looking at Portuguese mm. and trying to read it, um, <clears throat> always listening to music, looking at art. And I had a very close relationship to Brazil. Um, as I grew up, that started to change into just a big interest in anything that was like Brazil. So anything that was tropical. 
So then my interest started to be not just like tropical Brazil, but other parts that were tropical in Latin America and then tropical Africa and then tropical Asia. And then as a kid, I became like this geography nerd, just trying to find every place that was tropical because I knew that I was, my life started in a tropical place, but I was not in a tropical place. Hmm. The middle United States is not tropical at all. Right. Typical four seasons. Um, and so that became kind of like an obsession for me. And as a kid growing up, eventually I did get to go back to South America when I was 17, I did my final year of high school in Paraguay. And that was a very big thing for me because, um, yeah, I grew up in the United States in a public school and I go to a private school in Paraguay. I go from in a school that's got like 2000 people in my graduating class that are pulled from all these different towns to a class that had, I think if I remember nine people in it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I went from being in a school that had like tons of rules where the the entire structure of the school was built off of a blueprint of a women's penitentiary. So it looked like a prison. It felt like a prison. It was all white and, and like metal colors to then going to a school, which is like an old colonial building with giant pillars and things like that. A huge courtyard full of like trees and stuff. Um, I remember one of the first things that blew my mind is the first day of school or the first day I was in school in, in Paraguay, there was a kid that was smoking a cigarette in class and the teacher didn't say anything about it. And I just found that really shocking. I was like, wow, this is a, this is a completely different world. And then I remember we would go to school really early. Like I remember starting around like seven, but then we would, at lunch, we would just go home. You'd go home and you would take a nap and there wasn't a second round of school. Okay. And all of my family in the United States, they're kind of like, workers in the American system, right? So working for companies or laborers or working in uh, machinery, things like this, it's always related to like, like factories and the American system. Um, but then in South America, most of my family is all doing things that are more like white collar. So they're like into politics, into banking, uh, doctors, hmm. uh, lawyers, all these types of professions. So seeing that when I was 17 and comparing the two, you have a very like blue collar from a first world and then you have kind of like white collar from a third world and just how those different stereotypes would play off of each other. So when I was in the United States, I talk about going to South America, they think I'm dropping off in, in my like value of life. Uh, they think that like it's going to be a lot harder for me. Everything is going to be more difficult. If you go live there. If I go live there, right? Because just from the American point of view, Paraguay is way worse than the United States on par, right? So the um, idea is like if you go there, mm -hmm. your quality of life you would reduce, drop. Yeah. You wouldn't have as many options. It wouldn't be as fun. It wouldn't be as enjoyable. Mm -hmm. The United States has more options. Um, but when I went there, I felt it was it was the opposite for me. But it's just very interesting how, you know, I have a rich family from a poor country and a poor family from a rich country, and they're more or less equal, <laughs> but they don't really understand each other. And the fact that they don't speak the same languages right. kept that knowledge from from them. Uh, Okay, there's many things I, I, I have in mind. The first one that I, I wanted to keep in mind because it relates to everything you've mentioned, I think, is the concept of half. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a discussion recently about that thing where we say uh, half this, half that. But in fact, my opinion, which is not really my case, is just that when you say about someone that they're half this and half that, First, it's different than if the person says that I'm half this and half that. Mm -hmm. I think I'm not 
you know, for me, I'm white. I'm not going to say you're half this, you're half, you're half Brazilian, you're half mm -hmm. Paraguayan, half, mm -hmm. you know, whatever. Mm -hmm. But you said you use that. And I want to, I want to bring it up because what I said is that, but why not a hundred percent of each? Mm. And because the concept of half reduces a lot of the identity, you know, that's my opinion. Mm. That's uh, that's not a fact here. But I want to discuss this with you because you're someone who, who the way I know you, you're a hundred percent in in your approach to your own culture, mm -hmm. and you're a hundred percent in well, it, that's a perception again. You're a hundred percent in each, which makes another hundred percent. Mm. But you're not less of one and less of the other. You put them together. Yeah, it's a, a two in French. We say like a whole. Yeah. Um, I think it depends on like the way you look at it. It's like pessimistic, optimistic, realistic, however you want to mm. put it. But it's like when you're a mixed race, especially in the world today, it's somehow still quite novel, even though throughout history you had all these different civilizations with all these different people that are mixed. Uh, you can see the influences. Like, for example, if you look at Spain, you can see the influences that the Arabs had on that part of, of Europe, right? So we've constantly been doing this, but for some reason in the last hundred years, as all these countries were brand new and they're creating their new identities and their new nationalities, for some reason, everybody kind of went back to being this individual mindset, but we have all these mixed people that are coming out of globalization. I felt like in my generation, obviously it wasn't the case, but I didn't meet or know a lot of people who were mixed race. So whenever I would find out like a famous person was mixed race, even if they didn't have the same mixture as me, It was like really shocking and they were instantly like my hero and I mm. liked what they did. So I remember when I was like 11 and I found out who Bob Marley was and I knew that Jamaicans were mostly black, but I didn't know the whole history of their, their, their country because I was young. But then I remember Bob Marley's like, yeah, well, his dad was from the UK and then his mom was, was from Jamaica and she was black and he was white and he was mixed race. I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. And this guy's really famous. And it was like <laughs> one of the first times I knew of like a famous person who was mixed. Um, as I've gotten older now, like, I feel like it's kind of weird, especially being the UWC, because when I was a kid, I didn't know anybody who was mixed, right? And even though the UWC has lots of people who are not, let's say, mixed, uh, in the greater international school system, as it is today, you have a lot of mixed race kids mm -hmm. and mixed nationality kids, mixed ethnicity, and um, this is new. And it's kind of weird for me because, like, when I was a kid, I didn't find anybody, and now I'm, like, teaching all these kids. Right. And to me, it was such a big part of who I was. And to me, it's like, I feel like for a lot of them, yes, it is something that's important to them as their identity, but it isn't so crucial that they think about it all the time. Like it was for me because they're not alone. They have friends who have similar mm. experiences. They can see it. It's not a very, uh, let's say novel thing anymore. Um, but as far as like splitting into half and half, I think that language just comes from growing up in the United States and the United States loving to segment everything and categorize yeah. it. So even the United States, like African-American, Italian-American, Jewish-American, there's always like something that goes before it, right? There's always some prefix that you put before American. Um, but, but like we were saying in a podcast, in another episode, that what is, what is, what is it to be American anyways? Hmm. All apart from... The, the 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 indigenous people mm -hmm. which are not european which are not anything else than the indigenous communities um we're all immigrants we're it's a it's a country based on 
immigration now. Mm-hmm. Uh, same in Canada, as if I speak for my for my country. So, being, I remember the movie uh, Gangs of New York, where it's like the battle between the true Americans versus the the not true Americans, mm-hmm. like the others. Yeah. And it's another who's saying like I'm a true American. So so what is it really? <laughs> you know even these terms that we use i understand the, the 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 feeling the need of humans to categorize mm. but in terms of relationships uh, people we're we're with and just meeting a new person what does it matter mm. you know i think the language i use is for the sake of other people not for myself right so because other people have a hard time if somebody doesn't belong to a lot of different groups and they haven't been well-traveled or they haven't been well-educated in like all the different cultures and how they interact, a lot of people, it's easier for me to get the conversation moving if I'm like this, this, and this, right? I give them the, the words they want to and they're like, okay. Because if I have to explain what all these nuanced differences are between like a Paraguayan yeah. and a Brazilian, it gets really, really hard. <laughs> and even me, it's like, yeah, I'm half Paraguayan, half American based on like, let's say nationality. But Brazil's a significant part of me as well. Exactly. And it's a significant part of my dad's background and a little bit of my mom's. Um, and it's not like I'm a half, half, and then something else. It's like, so which one is more? And then I've lived in Thailand now for 11 years. Um, my family is also, like my family that I've married into is also ch- Chinese. So I have all these other cultures as well. I think for me personally, my identity is much more fluid than it is the way I present to other people. Because I feel that because my identity is so mixed and because it is constantly changing and evolving, um, I realize that not everybody's like that and not everybody can understand why I'm like that or why I like to have that kind of identity. So for the sake of keeping it simple for other people to digest, I guess, my eccentric version of being multicultural, it's easier if I just use like countries and titles. And then as they know me, it slowly evolves and my language changes. But that's a good point that you, you point out, like why I say half, because uh, I, I, I just have for a long time. Yeah, well, um, I mean, I think at, at the end of the day, you use the vocabulary that makes you feel comfortable and that you agree with. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, I think from your perspective, you're, you're using a respectful vocabulary. You're not going to. We had another discussion about uh, some words that are owned by certain communities that's mm. and these communities say you cannot use that word i'm not going to use that word mm. so so the, for me even um the 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 words for example um uh, mixed race mm-hmm. which is um it's something that i i'm not sure yet if it's accepted you know if mm. someone if i use it me oh. as a white person if it's gonna be uh, welcomed to who i'm talking to so I, i'm like I'm careful in the way I use mm. it, you know? It also depends on like which country you're looking at and how they put their lens of race, right? So in Brazil, you have lots of different ways that you can explain what your ethnicity is, right? So you have like mulato, which would be like mulato is like, you know, half black, half white. You have like caboclo. Caboclo would be like half white, half indigenous, right? You have mestizo. Mestizo is, yeah, it's kind of the same as caboclo. Uh, you have pardo. Pardo is kind of like a mixture of like African, European, and indigenous. So you have all these mm-hmm. different shades, and it's more or less self-identified. Because Brazil people have a lot of mixture of different things. It's more about like which features are coming out. How do you self-identify? Because if I look at my families in Paraguay and my friends in Brazil and their families, you look within the family because there's been so many different 
ethnicities that have mixed over time, you'll have a set of siblings that are very different in skin color with the same parents, right? right. One will be very light with like straight hair, the other one very dark with curly hair. Um, so they're always coming out new things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then, so Brazil has a long, a long range of them. Um, then Paraguay has basically like, if I can remember correctly, it's just three. It's just black, white, and mestizo. And most people are mestizo and that just means mixed, right? So, and that's what I would identify myself as, is mixed, even though mestizo is like Spanish and Guadani in the Paraguay context, the fact that I have more European from my mom's side on top of that would not change my identity. Okay. So I'm still mestizo mm -hmm. under the ideas of mesticidad, I guess, in, right. in Paraguay. <laughs> And then the United States has just weird ones. It's like white, not Hispanic, Hispanic, not white, black, not Hispanic, all these different things. And then that, the word Hispanic, that's one I personally, I hate that word. I hate that word. Hispanic. If anybody ever talks to me like, you're Hispanic, right? And I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm not Hispanic. I hate that word yeah, because yeah. it doesn't, and I know Lat, Latino doesn't make much sense either. They're both talking about language, but like Latino is like, you're from Latin America, right? And in Hispanic is more like you come from a place that speaks Spanish. That's a little bit weirder for me because number one, Hispanic is an English word, right? So identifying my race, which has a different language based on English words, is a little bit weird. Um, and then also in Paraguay, they speak a mixture of Castilian, which is a type of Spanish, like a dialect, a Castellano, and then Guarani. And they have a mixture they speak together called Jopara. So Saying Hispanic is like, well, that doesn't really identify who I am because my country that I come from speaks a mixture of Guarani and Spanish at the same time. So am I really Hispano? Am I really Hispanic? No. So I say Latino. And then that's another thing as well. There's arguments now about is Latino the right term to use? Um, for me, I would prefer to say Latino over Hispanic and prefer to say Mestizo when I talk about my actual like race, I guess. Mm. Um, but then like my son, who is now half, he's half Chinese in my mixture. Is he mestizo? Is he hapa? Like, I don't know. Right? Like, that's another term, like hapa, like, you know, like, uh, mm, I, or I, hafu, I, hafu in Japan, right? Like, just being half something that's Asian and half something that's not. And I'm going to suggest about this that in the end, he is the one who has to figure it out how he identifies. Yeah. Just and, like we're doing with the, with the pronouns. Mm-hmm which I think is something that is important in 2021 that, you know, at first I didn't really understand it. Um, not that I didn't accept it. I was just curious what's the nature of it and what, how it helps. So before I, I put it on my Instagram profile, for example, I just mm -hmm. asked, uh, and I did, I, I just did my research, how, how it contributes. And it's just normalizing that someone can choose and someone has feelings that they can express and hey, I'm they, you say they, mm. or someone who we might think I might see as a male, say I'm she. Mm -hmm. And, and so coming back to the example of your son at the end of the day, uh, he's the only one with this background. Mm -hmm. He has your background. He has your mom's background, uh, your wife's background. Mm -hmm. And I guess, uh, There can be guidance, but ultimately his feeling is the one that's, that's a suggestion. Mm -hmm. I don't know what you think. But it'll always depend on like where he is, right? Where he is. Also, so like, like if mm -hmm. he's in South America, the fact that he looks more Asian or he'll probably grow up to look more Asian may mean that he's only Asian, right? Uh, yeah. It'll depend on where he is. Like, as you can always self-identify if you're in a safe space. 
But if you're in a place that has different rules and you, you really can't self-identify, hmm. like that's another interesting thing. Like there's really not any kind of knowledge about what Latinos are in Thailand. So Latinos are kind of grouped in with Europeans as having the same culture as right. being the same people. And there's not that nuance to it. But the same as like if you're in Brazil, they may not know the nuance between the difference between somebody from Laos and somebody from Burma. Yeah. They'd be like, oh no, they're Chinese. Yeah. So I think like in the world, we all have these little blind spots, right? And I happen to be yeah. in a spot where my ethnicity is kind of not known about here, which is a little bit of a benefit. Well, actually, it's a huge benefit because all the stuff that I had to deal with in the United States about being half, as we say it, that kind of disappears here. Everybody here is like, hey, who cares? <laughs> like, it doesn't really matter. Interesting. For, for me, uh, it's associated... The, my accent is associated automatically 97% of the time with France. Hmm. And it surprises people first when I say I'm, I'm Canadian mm -hmm. or that I never stepped in France. And it's like, hey, why, have you, why have you never traveled to France? <laughs> I never had to. I never specifically wanted to, you know, because for me, I associate travel to seeing something different. I don't yeah. kind of know things about France already. I'm not like attracted hmm. i don't have the urge to to go there but and then even some some um a student one day asked me if if uh, i would support france like in a soccer game i was like hmm. i don't know i don't care i don't even watch soccer <laughs> hey it's football sir yeah, yeah you see like i'm yeah. from quebec yeah. <laughs> for me football is is another sport hmm. and i mean i don't take it bad uh, i don't um uh, i because i I'm not, I've never been undermined hmm. for my color, my language. Uh, I, I'm, I come from privilege, so in many ways. So I, yeah, I'm not offended by it, but I, but it, I can't hide that there is, uh, for some, depending on how the relationship and the discussion evolves, if the person keeps on associating me with something that I'm not, hmm. I do feel a bit of irritation that I keep for myself, but it makes me see how other people that are, that do not come from privilege mm. in terms of uh, like being the minority in a place and constantly being associated with something that they're not. Yeah. And my irritation is something that's, that might be exponential for some people mm. depending on their context. And so, and in the school that we teach, at um, it's some I'm glad to feel it because when someone says it that hey uh, I, I don't like uh, being associated like I'm Chinese I'm not Thai mm. um, fair enough you know it belongs to you mm. you might be in Thailand but you're and some people might think you look like a Thai person but you're you're Chinese and that's that's your identity I'll give it to you mm -hmm. um, one of the things that I enjoy the most, it's kind of like one of the little hidden superpowers about being mixed, <coughs> sorry, is that um, we learned, and I say we, okay, I learned, and I would assume that other people that are similar to me have learned, that when you're a little kid and you have these split identities, you learn really, really quickly to be skeptical about humans, as in general, just like all humans. Because you start to see when you have two choices lined up that are of equal value, and then you need to choose one. Hmm. And then you start to realize hmm. how, how arbitrary like a lot of our culture is, right? So like even my example, my family, they're both Christian. One is a Protestant, 
the other one's Catholic, right? So one has a Baptist style, the other one has a Catholic style. So the way that you go about dealing with like sin or a mistake is completely different, right? So I found the Baptist side to be, while judgmental, a little bit more space for like fixing problems, right? Wasn't perfect, obviously. Very judgmental as well. It's still the Christian faith. But yes, when I looked at the Catholic side, right, then it's like every time that you do something wrong, you have like a list and you're supposed to say something like 10 times, five times. You're supposed to go talk to a person in a box. And both sides are telling me this side is the correct way. And when you play them off each other, you realize like, well, these are both just arbitrary rules you both set up. Yeah. And so you start to look at, okay, well, what are the other systems? And so I learned at a really young age, like, okay, the cool thing about being mixed is that you're expected to not follow all the rules because you can't follow both sets of rules at the same time. You can't be pleasing both sets of families at the same time. And so then you realize I don't really need to please either set of the family, really, because they don't expect me to all the time. Mm. And what that gives you is the freedom to then look at all the cultures of the world on equal footing because you don't have this kind of like rigid loyalty or like uh, pride for who you are because you already come from kind of like a shattered and reassembled set. Right. So, and, and we'll get to that concept that we're, um, I think you, it, that leads to, but before I just want to connect to something you said earlier mm -hmm. uh, about the first time you saw Bob Marley and mm -hmm. what he represents and it leads me to think of the importance of representation oh, in yeah. media, in movies, in books, in music, and in a way where <clears throat> there are no norms that are set because of the lack of representation mm -hmm. in these things that we consume every day, in ads, in, you know I, know, I know that I've been biased in the way I think to a certain extent because of how I mean, uh, uh, biased, yeah, biased could be a word, but influenced, surely, on how to think of other people because of what I saw in movies. Mm -hmm. And there was a lack of um, black representation and Asian representation and mostly indigenous representation mm -hmm. in Canada, uh, where it made me, before I even knew enough about them, forget about them mm -hmm. because they're just not there on the screen. And so... Uh, it's a responsibility that I think all media have to allow space for this uh, eventai, the, 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 this colorful, uh, this this color uh, uh, brackets mm -hmm. that we that we have in our country. It's important to not just hey we're white, so we're just gonna have white actors or white people. It's not yeah. the real. It's not true. It's not realistic. Mm. You know. Um, no, representation is really important. And thankfully, recently, in a lot of different places where I have looked, I have seen there have been changes for representation, at least for my group, which would be like the multiculturals, the third culture kids, mixed race kids, whatever. I was just talking about this uh, earlier today about like TV shows. So that Korean TV show, another like plug, like there's mm -hmm. a new show on Netflix called So Not Worth It. And it's about an international school dorm and all the kids there. And I'm always interested in any kind of TV show or movie that has a bunch of different people from different countries and there's like lots of different languages flying around and you have all these different like cultural clashes and like misunderstandings. I love shows like that because mm. that's been my life, right? So I identify with that. Um, but this show is great because it's in South Korea at an international school, but 
everybody's speaking to each other in Korean. Normally, when it's an international school setting, everybody's speaking to each other in English, mm-hmm. right? So I was like immediately attracted to this show. I was like, wow, everybody's talking in Korean. It doesn't matter if they're even from the same country as each other. They're communicating in Korean. And maybe think about in the United States, even if somebody or there are two people from Russia, if they're in a group of people who are all speaking English, they'll also speak to each other in English so everybody can understand. But it was very interesting to see English lowered down and Korean pushed up. Because um, hmm. as a kid as well, <clears throat> I always found it really weird because I was mixed. Still I am mixed. But at that time... Uh, I did not prefer the American side. Once I understood really well the South American side, I always thought the South American side was better than the American side in most things when I had to make a choice. Um, I did not notice that a lot for other people in the United States who were in my same situation. They preferred to like the American side and not like their other side. And I always found that kind of weird. I was like, why does everybody like the American side more? Like, why don't you like your, your like ethnic side? Because that's the side that you are kind of labeled by the Americans. It's from that your different side, not from your right. American side, Always. right? But most people would try to lean to that American side because the more you go into it, the more rewards you get within the society, right? What I love about this show is like, you see that it's there's other people who choose different ways, right? Like um, I have a friend here in Thailand. He's recently became an actor uh, a couple years ago and uh, he's half African, half Thai. And when I first met him, it blew my mind because I tried to talk to him in English. He didn't understand any English. He only understood Thai. And I was like, wow, okay, so you're one of these kids who's looked at the opposite way, right? And in this TV show, there's a kid who's half Nigerian, half Korean, doesn't speak any English, doesn't really know anything about his Nigerian side, acts, speaks, understands the world through a Korean perspective. Uh, And seeing that representation on TV, it's like, yes, this is great because this is a normal story but for the longest time, these are the stories that were kind of like, no, that's not how most situations right. are, right? Uh, is it on Netflix? It's on Netflix, yeah. And brand new. So not worth it. Which so. is, and speaking of media and representation, Netflix, I feel, is doing an effort for that. I don't know how it was built in their structure, mm. but they do offer opportunities, you know, at least if it's not... And of course, I think there's the algorithms working in, mm. in what's suggested. I don't think there is, but, um, but there is this presence. I don't know in the other, um, I'm not using like Amazon or <laughs> I'm not using the, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm not using it, but I, I don't know if the, if there's this uh, conscious effort that is mm. uh, being made. But to- I don't necessarily think Netflix is doing it out of the goodness of their heart. I think that they realize that in the globalized world that, these mixed experiences are kind of becoming a normal thing and that if they tap into that they can make a lot of money Uh, because like i said when i was a kid i didn't know a lot of mixed race people or mixed like cultural multicultural mixed nationality and now i see a lot a lot of people and it seems like it's a brand new like part of society so Mm -hmm. i think netflix is just kind of tapping yeah they're they're making money off it but it shows that the world is going it kind of shows something about the 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 presence of uh the cultures and the mixed cultures and this, these other realities, at least. And of course, I'm, I was not saying, <laughs> <laughs> of course, they're making it for money. Sure. But uh, but but uh, it, it it does connect to um, a concept that you brought. And I know that it was the first time I heard about it. Um, and I, I feel like you're the best person to talk about this because you've experienced it. 
not only have you experienced it, I think there's a connection with your name. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the concept of cultural cannibalism. I'm just going to say why you started talking about this in the discussion we had is because I was asking about cultural appropriation. And there's, <clears throat> there's differences in these concepts in the meaning and in the connotation. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would really like if you could explain here what's the idea of cultural cannibalism sure. and where it's from. Yeah. Go. Cultural cannibalism is my name. So my name is Sese, and Sese is just the initials CC in Portuguese, and it's pronounced like that, Sese. And that stands for Cannibal Cultural, which was my nickname in Brazil, uh, because kind of I embody what a cultural cannibal is. The name keeps people at bay. I really wish that it would have been given a different name in the beginning because people hear cannibal and they're like, oh my God, you're eating people. It's like, that's not at all what it's about. But cultural cannibalism came from this Brazilian modernist called Osvaldo Andrade, who was part of a modernist movement in Brazil in the early 20th century. And basically he wrote this manifest, which was this kind of like sarcastic prose manifest called the, um, the Cannibal Manifest or the, the manifest of uh, anthropophagia or anthropophagy, right? So the eating of people, cannibalism. And basically it's this sarcastic prose where he's explaining that, or he's, let's see, he's proposing that Brazilians are a type of super race among humans. And the proposition that he's making is that because they have devoured and absorbed into their, their DNA and their soul the European culture, the African culture, and the indigenous culture all at the same time, that they embody an, an evolved type of human because they've kind of erased these things. Now, obviously in Brazil, race is a lot more complicated and nuanced than that. There is racism. There are issues of inequality amongst the different groups, right? Indigenous people, blacks a little bit above them, white people at the top. I mean, it still has that kind of structure, but overall the culture of Brazil is very, very mixed. And the reason why it's, it comes a lot to colonialism and how the countries were made. So the United States would say that it's a multicultural country and Brazil would also say it's a multicultural country. They would probably both mm. argue with each other about who's more multicultural because they do it in a different way. But basically when the Puritans came over to the Americas, they came as family units and they set up these little like walled off forts where they would live inside their community. The men and the women were there, so they did not need any other people to come in to continue to reproduce. And they basically can create their own civilizations, their own societies on land where, you know, the natives are living aside from them. But the Portuguese, when they came to South America, they did not come with women. They came by themselves. Also, South America is very different. That part of South America, Brazil, Rio, is very different in weather than, than Portugal is. Whereas if they're going to New England from England, it's pretty much the same. It's very mm. similar. So adapting is not that hard. The Portuguese could not adapt to South America without the help of the indigenous people. Hmm. And they also started to have miscegenation right off the bat, whereas they started to intermix between their different groups, right? So right off the bat, you have Portuguese men and indigenous women having children. So the first generation of Brazil is already mixed. There are these caboclos, there are these criolos, there are these, these mixed people, and they ended up becoming kind of like the de facto leaders of the nation because they were the mediaries who could speak between the two groups. They right. knew the two different languages. It was, it was seen as a, as a strength, actually. It was not seen as a... 
Right. The mix was seen already as a strength in the essence, in the, yes. in the genesis. Yes. And because that was happening not just with one or two groups, that was happening all across what was then the, the state of Brazil within the Portuguese empire, you have this entire generation of people who are, are mixed, basically. Then you have Africans coming in as well, and the miscegenation keeps going. Whereas the United States, you never had this mass miscegenation. The indigenous people were not mixing whole scale with the Europeans. Mm. The Europeans were not mixing whole scale with the Africans when they came. And more or less, groups were separate. Yes, there was people that were having babies between the different groups, mm. but it was not the norm. So in South America, by that being the norm for their survival, also because the Portuguese and the Spanish didn't care so much about making a brand new civilization there, they just kind of wanted to take out the resources, right. whereas the people in the Americas wanted to build a new civilization. They just came and they spun out in different ways. So what happens is Brazil, you have this country where they, they have a lot of indigenous aspects and African aspects that are infused with their dominant European culture. Uh, you can see this in their language. The best way you can see this is their football, like the way that they play football. Like they've done documentaries that talk about it a lot, but like the way that they mix all the different ideas of strategy into the way they play is how they're able to be productive. So the way that they have the choral singing and the way that they, in the crowd and the way that they do a certain type of communication is based on like an indigenous style. When they do the Jenga and it's more about playful and showmanship is coming from their Nigerian Yoruba roots. And then the European style about following the rules and the strategy of football, all of those things came together, became like this style of football, which was very, very hard for people to know how to play against. It was very, very hmm. weird, right? And can you just say the Jinga was the, the Jinga? Jinga is just Jinga. like um, it comes from capoeira, so capoeira okay. is like the dance yeah, fighting, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And the Jinga is your basic move where you kind of like do one step back and then you go to the ground and then you step over and you do another step back. Okay. So it's basically your sway from one side to the other side. It's like the basic dance move that sets up every move. That Jinga okay. set yeah. up the deeks and the fake out moves that you could see in people like Neymar today when they are trying to pass a player, right? Hmm. So they use certain elements of capoeira well, in the way that they jinga, which is like being off the ball, being very lively, right? But having your feet move around a little bit differently. A lot of the deking and things like that, that started with the Brazilian teams in the 60s. And when they were doing that, like when Pele first came on, like when he was like 16, all that evolution of those first like 10, 12 years as a national team, that completely changed the way that football was played in the world. Nobody else was playing like the Brazilians were. And they kind of like changed the rules for how football was played. Uh, <laughs> another example of this you can see like more actively today is with UFC, mixed martial arts, right? MMA. This also developed from Brazil. And this is a very, very strong example of what cultural cannibalism right. is. So I kind of got off the point. Cultural cannibalism no, is a manifest. In line, actually. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Cultural cannibalism, the manifest was basically saying that there's a line from it. There's a couple lines that are very iconic. One is um, turning taboo into totem. So the whole point is to take everything that's considered taboo from the outside and elevating it to a totem status. That a lot of times when you're looking at your enemy, the thing that you fear the most in them or the thing you dislike the most is the thing that is the thing that can hurt you the most, right? It's the thing that you're afraid of. And so that's the thing that you, you kind of villainize, right? Um, so it's the idea that looking outside of your culture, anything that's considered strong, stronger than you, something that maybe looks a little bit afraid, makes you feel vulnerable, that's valuable. 
Whatever that thing is, that's valuable because that's a certain type of power. You should elevate that. You shouldn't say that's not allowed mm-hmm. because you can't control it because you're afraid of it. Which is a tab- you should absorb it and you can have that strength too. Making it a totem. Yeah. Where the cannibalism comes into it, and this is a debated thing within scholars, is that there was a belief that when the Europeans first came to the Americas and South America and they met the Tupi Guarani who were all along the coast, um, and this is... I'm from the Guarani. I'm a descendant of the Guarani tribe. Uh, when they came, the idea was that the Europeans said that they were cannibals, that they, these were cannibal people, and they, they needed to kind of like quell the cannibal tribes. A point of view that's been taken from some Brazilian scholars and Colombian scholars, Peruvian scholars, is that the cannibalism that was seen was not done as like some type of like evil, like killing them and eating them like for food but it was more like ritualistic, like after a battle, if somebody of incredible value was killed, that they would cook and eat that person amongst the village. Everybody would eat a piece of that meat to absorb that person's soul. So if I was part of one tribe and we went to war with another tribe and we managed to kill their chief, out of a sign of respect for that chief, that chief would then be cooked and then eaten by the tribe so they could absorb his soul, his strength, his wisdom, whatever he had, and that would then come into their, their body. Basically, that the thing that they were afraid of would then become the thing that was their weapon mm-hmm. or their power. And you can see this in Christianity with like the sacrament, like drinking the, the blood of Christ and, mm-hmm. and eating the wafer, all that kind of stuff. It's the same idea. Uh, but what happened was Brazil with the, the cultural cannibalism by Osvaldo Andrade is he basically said that when they stopped doing cannibalism of flesh, they started to do cannibalism of ideas. Exactly. And that is what kept them ahead of everybody else. And that's what makes them evolved. So he said there's one, there's one other line. I don't know the exact lines, but he's talking about a very famous like French philosopher. He's like, and he was speaking all these things, and I was listening to his beautiful and I ate him. And it was like the idea, it's like I liked what he had to say, and therefore I took his ideas. And so the whole point of cultural cannibalism is to look at all the options that are given to you about how you could be a human. So the different cultural options, like how do you use your, how do you raise a family? These are all the different options you have. And then the advice is take what's good and leave what isn't. So the idea is that instead of looking at only the cultures that you inherit at birth, your gender, your nationality, your language, your class, your race, whatever these things are, when you take only the ones that you inherit, you have a very small amount of ways that you can express being a human and the ways that you can experience being a human. Minimal if you only stick with what you've inherited, hmm. your people, more or less, right? But if you branch out of that and you look at all of the options of how you could be a human and you mix and match by doing that, take what's good and leave what isn't, then you can become a more evolved human because you realize that number one, you're a human on earth. You're not a person from an imaginary country with imaginary borders, right? right. <laughs> um, and so how this evolved is that, like I said, uh, this manifest then has been brewing for the last 100 years and it's come about through football brazilian music they had a whole um movement called tropicalia or the tropicalism movement which came out in the 60s uh which is like this too where they were mixing european music with brazilian music made a lot of people very upset made a lot of brazilian traditionalists very upset it was a cultural clash the tropicalists end up winning they kind of won the cultural war of what it meant to be brazilian and now tropicalia is what they call uh, Musica Popular Brasileira, which is like pop music, 
So what has become the revolution in music is now pop music. And like what I was saying about MMA, MMA is the perfect example of cultural cannibalism because if you, anybody's watched mixed martial arts evolve over the last 30 years from when it's really started in the 90s to where it is today, you can see that in the beginning you would have all these people who would specialize. So it would be like a sumo wrestler against the boxer. Who has the better sport? Hmm. And they would just fight each other. And then you say, okay, the sumo wrestler won. But then over time, they slowly started to take what was good from each martial art and leave what wasn't. And then you started to build. So now if you want to become a champion, you have to be good at Muay Thai. You have to be good at wrestling. You have to have a black belt in jujitsu. You have to understand like a little bit of like capoeira and spacing. Like all these different things come together. And it becomes that now the sport is so advanced that every year there's one new move hmm. that hurts everybody. <laughs> so like this last year, it was kicking the front the... calf. And oh, it came yeah. out of nowhere, kicking the front calf. And they realized in Muay Thai that if you kick the front calf, that you can completely like demobilize a person's like hmm. range and movement around the ring. So you start to see everybody kick this front calf. And now everybody has to adjust to it. Yeah. Because the sport has become so tight and so good by this cultural cannibalism style that really, if you come from one set, it will be impossible for you to be a champion. Right. And w in all that you said, the two main examples that I had in mind were music and sports. They're, they're mm -hmm. the areas where I, not the only ones, but the, the main areas of my life that like I, I, um, I experienced and the influence we talked about, uh, for example, in music, we talked about hip hop before, and mm -hmm. I was uh, telling you about the group I am and making connections with Wu-Tang Clan because they uh, they know each other. Akhenaton from I am who uh, became friends with uh, RZA from Wu-Tang Clan. And when you look at the two before knowing that they knew each other, I noticed the reference to swords, martial arts, mm. uh, uh, the samurai, and I it's it's a wonder why they they, they, they have this I just mm. hear it in both and then yeah like they these guys are together and they integrate something together mm -hmm. and make something greater out of out of it in their own way uh, with sports it's a I mean in basketball and football uh, uh, for me I was stealing the moves of, of players like mm -hmm. I see the player do that kind of move I need to do it too mm -hmm. you know and it's there's nothing wrong about it. Uh, the now with all of this, and I think it's a very for me. I it's a very optimistic and beautiful way of looking at interaction with other cultures. At some point, I felt I questioned myself in my way to to approach different cultures because. I didn't want to do what is called cultural appropriation, which mm. is negatively connoted. That was not the idea. It's, it's the idea that more than, oh, that's so cool. It's not, it's not cool. It's, mm. it's new to me. I'm curious about it. Yeah. I love how it makes me feel and I want to experience it. Not in, in the sense of stealing it, but I want it, I want it to be part of my experience and, and even share something. And, my thing is languages. Mm. So I have this linguistic background, which uh, gives me access to cultures because I, I'm tempted to learn. You know, I, 
I'm bilingual, bilingual f- uh, French and English, but there's, and I would say Swahili was the, is my third language in the sense that I lived in Tanzania enough to be conversational in Swahili. Mm-hmm. But then there's like bits and pieces of other languages that I know, and I appreciate it because it does make me understand more about these cultures that I, uh, that I um, spent time with, invested time with, and enjoyed. Um, but I'm not stealing their language. I'm experiencing it with them. And that, that makes me create connections that are very valu- valuable. But language is one thing. Then there's music. Then there's greetings. Mm-hmm. For example, the why in, in Thailand is something that I... Actually, it's something that in the pandemic, all the world could have used. Yeah. And, I, and I did it. But then it, 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 where I'm from, it's like uh, we're so into shaking hands which um, is like creating a physical connection with someone. Mm-hmm. It's shaking ha- hands, uh, hugging, kissing. We do all that. So now we need that contact with someone, so we use the elbow. Mm. But I, I was like, it kind of kills the purpose. And there's other, way, other really nice and fulfilling ways to greet someone. And the why is an example. Yeah. And you keep your distance. You put your hands together in front of your heart and you, you bow the, the head down. Yeah. It's something that... Um, I don't know if I go back to Quebec, am I going to be accused of cultural appropriation? I'm, I, ah. No, you know, it's, that's not what it is. Mm. It's a shared experience that now I, I, I like, it makes me feel good. I want to yeah. share it with you now. Um, that's a good point that you bring up about cultural appropriation though, because like I'm an artist, right? That's, that's what I'm known for. That's, I'm an art educator here, but I've also been an artist for my entire adult life and Shout out to your work, yeah. by the way. Cece <laughs> Nobre, please go see that. <laughs> yeah, island, island of Quilombo. Um, all of my work is basically, yeah, it's a mixture of a bunch of different tropical cultures. Um, and some people could say, you know, oh, that might be cultural appropriation. I've had conversations with a couple of artists like, don't you feel like your work could be called cultural appropriation? And I feel like, no, I don't feel that way because then I'm saying that I'm a cultural appropriation. Because like it's basically saying that like, it's it's not okay to be mixed. Because mm. if you're mixed, mm-hmm. you should be you're using something that's incorrect. Because as a kid growing up, I would always get accused of culturally appropriating something. I don't have enough of something to be able to claim it as mine, right? right. Um, and then you get like that Brazilian side as well. It's like, well, if I'm doing this because I absorb it into who I am, it's my identity. It's who. It's how I see the world. I, it's not. I, I mean, it is appropriation. But it's not a negative thing, right? Right. And the, I think, the connotation is is yeah. uh, is what's weird, you know. Like, there's a couple things that do bother me when I see it, and like I said, cultural appropriation. I don't like that. Like, for example, when people are like at a rave or a musical festival and they have like a giant headdress on, right? You see that a lot, like Coachella and mm. Burning Man, or whatever. They have like a giant headdress, Native American headdress on, right. and I see that a lot. That it's become like kind of like a EDM. Type oh, of, that like, people wear that. Usually. Yeah, yeah. Like okay. for their dancing and stuff. And I was like, well, that one doesn't really make sense. Like that's the type of cultural appropriation. Like it doesn't, okay. it doesn't even make sense in the context. It's just you're wearing it because it looks cool. Yeah. Like um, the, okay. The blackface. Those yeah. are different. Yeah, yeah. But I wouldn't even say blackface is appropriation. That's just like. No, that's an insult. yeah, yeah. That's like, um, but then, like for example, like when people talk about dreadlocks, for example, dreadlocks are not cultural appropriation because dreadlocks have existed in many different cultures. They're only attributed to mostly like African American culture, right? But or like Rastas. But dreads have been in many different cultures, right? So I don't see that as an appropriation thing. Mm. Um, language as well. Like if you speak another language really, really well and you use that, it's definitely not appropriation. 
one thing that's funny about the Brazilian point of view, like the cultural cannibalism point of view, is that basically if you see another human who's doing something, you have a right to do that thing because you're a human. And anything else that's in the way is just society's problem. But if you really feel in your heart that's who you are and what you want to be, then that's what it is. Hmm. Right. It's, um, I think that the connotation might be linked to... It's linked to power. Yeah. It's linked like to the power. The relationship is, of power that, yeah. that people, you know, I can understand if someone is a, is a minority. Uh, sorry. I'm trying to express. It's, it's hard to express. Um, uh, okay, I'll give an example and at home, uh, please bear with me. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, there's d many communities in Quebec. Mm -hmm. One that is, uh, represented a lot is the Haitian community from Haiti. Mm -hmm. And in Haiti, they speak Creole. They speak also French, mm -hmm. but... Uh, the Creole, it's a cre they're Creolophone. I'm taking this from uh, a, a podcast that I watched, okay. the, the, that term and what they said. Um, and so the, the, I can understand that maybe they want to keep that for themselves in the sense that that's, it belongs to them. Mm the ones in power and that take the power and abuse the power don't come and take our what's ours mm. okay i can understand that maybe the connotation of cultural appropriation might be you know if you're taking everything from us don't don't go there you know mm. don't take that as well yeah so the so i because i saw some comments um in a in a show called the uh, um occupation hood which is like a it's an it's a live show on Instagram where uh, the guy who created it, Ty, okay. Tyler Laguerre, he welcomes people, two people, to seduce themselves, and then if it's a match, they go in the DMs and carry okay. on the discussion. <laughs> uh, anyways, it's, it's genius. But there's many comments, and then um, I saw a comment one day where it says like, "Oh, the, that guy is speaking Creole. What the hell?" Mm. And okay, the the. The reason why the person speaks Creole, I don't know. Is it wrong for that person to speak Creole? Mm -hmm. Ultimately, I guess it depends on the intentions. <laughs> it does depend on the intention. Um, but the fact that a person is speaking the language doesn't diminish anything. I, I mean, for me, it's, it might be my perception of languages, but it's, uh, it's when someone speaks French in Quebec, who's not a native French speaker, I appreciate it, hmm. right? Uh, even if, and especially with English people who, like in the history, they, we were told the French people who lost the battle of the Plains of Abraham, you're going to speak English and you're going to be Protestant. And we said, hmm. no, we're speaking French, we're Catholics, and we're going to build our own schools and do our own thing. We're going to leave the cities. We can live in the cold on our own. We don't need you guys. And so that's why we still speak French today. When I hear someone speaking English, uh, uh, English native speaker speaking French, I like it. I, I, I see the effort in it. I see the, uh, I guess there's a, the, the intentions matter, but ultimately sharing these languages is welcoming them 
I see the, 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 the you know, now I don't know if at home I would, uh, uh, even if I know a bit of Creole because of friends that I have that showed me, if I use it deliberately in any context, if it would be welcome, maybe it mm -hmm. won't be. And I think um, it's a shame in the sense that we lose the essence of sharing languages and culture because of something that was created by oppressors and mm -hmm. settlers. And Well, I personally believe that cultural appropriation is basically like a Western issue. Like I haven't noticed it a lot in like, let's say like non-Western countries where it's such a big topic to talk about. Like most people say like, that seems like, and when I talk about my family in South America about cultural appropriation, their opinion is just like, I don't, I don't understand what the problem is. Like, what's, what's the issue? Like, it doesn't seem like it should be that big of a dramatic thing. And I think it's because, you know, you're talking about the United States, Canada, uh, Australia, let's say New Zealand, UK. They're dealing with issues of their own kind of history. And there's a lot of things that are coming out now where there's a lot of like guilt about history and then you still don't have equity amongst the groups and there's not justice. And you have all these different groups, well, particularly in Canada, the United States, who aren't really native, let's say. Mm. Like it's not like the yeah. indigenous people are not really calling the shots. So the cultural appropriation argument is a lot more testy and it's a lot more sensitive because then you bring up questions about why, why is the power hierarchy like that? Yeah. And why is this group in control? And why do they not realize that they have subjugated the other groups, right? Um, so I think that always, when I hear about that, my always opinion is when people want to put that on me, to like you culture appropriate or your arts culture appropriate. And it's like, that's, that's your issue. That's not my issue. Cause I don't see the world mm. through that way. Right. I see the world. I'm already mixed. So I already have the power struggle within oh. myself. Mm -hmm. So you dealing with it, you can deal with it. I've dealt with it since I was a child. I know that I'm okay to be both things right. and to choose other things as well that are not mine. So I'm in a different part of the path, but I always find cultural appropriation, just being very honestly speaking, it's not an evolved part of the conversation when it comes to society. It's, 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 a, it's a conversation that's happening in societies that are dysfunctional and are in the middle of their dysfunction. Right. But it's not like a real argument because the whole world is cultural appropriating everything. Yeah. I mean, look at Italian food, like noodles and tomatoes. <laughs> One comes from Asia, the other one comes from the Americas, yeah. right? It's like iconic for what they are. What's the number one dish in the UK? It's like a curry, right? It yeah, used to be fish exactly. and chips, now it's like a curry. <laughs> Think about like uh, sushi, right? You have sushi goes to the United States, becomes California rules, and Californians go back to Japan, become a number one type of sushi. There's all this cultural appropriation going back and forth. They talk about our ties. They talk about before, like the necktie that yeah. comes from Croatia, right? <laughs> so like is everybody culturally appropriating the Croatians, like... That's what culture is. That's what humanity is. It's our, it's our ratchet effect. It's the ability that we continue to build on the information from the generation before. And we know if something is good, if it's good knowledge, then we keep it. Right. And we start to slowly phase out the stuff that's not. And I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah I think so I'm much of our language and our cultures come yeah. from slowly appropriating things from others. Exactly, know? exactly. And I'll, I'll, we're doing a full circle here to something I said at the beginning. However, if I'm being told by the main carrier of the of the culture that yeah. something is inappropriate, then if I'm experiencing the culture, it's my uh, responsibility to respect that. Yeah. You know, there's things that are culturally inappropriate and disrespectful mm -hmm. that I must understand, which is part of the experience. Now, if I go against that and I say, no, but I'll do it still, mm. then this is... I don't see appropriation, I see colonialism, mm -hmm. an idea of 
hey, I'm stepping on your ground and I'm taking it, whatever you say. Yeah. You know, and so and that I see a problem in it. And I know that uh, in the relationship of power, which applies to part of the definition of racism and mainly the definition of colonialism, is people who claim things that are not theirs and they don't respect it the way it is. Mm-hmm. And so about food, for example, uh, I mean, we do have quotation marks, Thai restaurants in, in Quebec, for example. Mm-hmm. But uh, of course, it doesn't taste the same, you know, and mm-hmm. uh, we still call it a pad Thai, um, where here the pad Thai is different. It's in, like there is uh, commonalities, mm-hmm. but we make it, I guess, uh, we take the idea and make it in a, in a certain way and we call it a pad Thai now. It's it's not an insult for me. It's like a sharing where we're sharing because here in Thailand, we can eat a burger in a Thai restaurant yeah, and they yeah. make it their own way, you mm-hmm. know, <laughs> you know, that's, so, a funny, that's a funny thing to think about too. It's just like, how does like, like say like standard food, like what we call like standard food, like international food as it goes around the world, how it changes. Like I remember like in, in Brazil, we had like a shish tudu, it was like a hamburger, but they would put like, um, peas and like potato cracklings on top and like a fried <laughs> onion or fried egg and onions and stuff on top it was a, a giant thing and then i remember like pizza in paraguay they would use like goat's milk and they would put one green olive on every single piece oh and like you would never so use the like, pickle kind of yeah yeah and then like <laughs> and just and just just different ways that people approach everything like um i remember <laughs> talking about black beans like South America, we eat black beans all the time. I go to China, they're like, black beans are for dessert. Why would you eat it salty? That's for a horse. It's like, well, I've never thought about it. They eat like a horse, but okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, I, just, I love those little different like ways to look at it. Like uh-huh. South America, we had an avocado tree. And I grew up in the United States. Avocados are for guacamole, like the Mexican food, right? So we have all these avocados dropping. I'm like, oh, and I make this big thing of guacamole and my family wouldn't eat it. Because it was like, why did you oh, put yeah. raw onions in it? You don't put raw onions in with avocado. That's disgusting. And I'm like, what do you do with it? Like, you mix it with milk and make a smoothie. And I'm like, no. That's a huge waste of avocado. What are you doing? You're not even going to taste it. But it's just about, like, these little, like, approaches to stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. And then eventually, my family, some of them started to like guacamole as well. It's like these little changes, you know? Yeah, exactly. We slowly influence each other. Um, I am hopeful that... I mean, it's going to be, with all cultural changes, it's going to be rough and rocky. But I do kind of hope that as we do have more people that are of multiple cultural experiences, that do have very, very, let's say, mixed and complicated backgrounds, as these people start to become a bigger group and they start to influence the world, that hopefully things can improve. Because as humans, we have... We have all the answers, but they're all scattered amongst our languages and our experiences, right? But if we ever found the way to actually listen to each other and move closer, we could solve a lot of problems. But right now, it's like a lot of people want their set package to be accepted as the set package. It's like, no, actually, like you have a set menu. I take one thing off of your menu and I add it to the final solution. Um, But a, a lot of pride is in a lot of people. They want to feel that their culture has got it all sorted out. No one culture has got it all sorted out. Exactly. You've got to find the pieces amongst all this chaos that we create in civilization. And through that, you'd find the answers, you know, but it's going to take, it's going to take time. A lot of people. (laughs) Yeah. Because uh, you're saying this and I'm thinking, I mean, I'm just going to drop this here that white supremacy represent homogeneity, which 
in a way that doesn't leave space to the other ways of doing, ways of living, ways of thinking, and ways of saying. So white supremacy is a huge block, a huge obstacle mm. in having the world the world move move forward because um, it's one way. It's only one culture, mm -hmm. and a white supremacy community reproduces among themselves and if they stay in power mm -hmm. then the freaking problem just keeps coming yeah right and so that's why it has it does have to be ended mm -hmm. the, the white supremacy movement or whatever you call it and i'm saying this i'm white <laughs> and i'm cisgender and i'm heterosexual i'm holding a canadian passport i'm all these things you know mm -hmm. and but i I don't know how I can express and how much I'm against this homogeneic uh, way of living and well, deciding and all that. It's about like exposure. Like it wasn't that long ago that like miscegenation was illegal, right? Like in the 1960s and 70s, like when my mom was born in the United States, people of different race could not marry. Misogenation. 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 Yeah, it sounds so like misogyny. misogyny. It sounds like misogyny. It's not. Miscegenation is the mixing of two different ethnic groups. Right. Right. Okay. Um, so, like, in, you know, like you, everybody knows Trevor Noah. Yeah. Trevor Noah, like, whenever he was born in the United States, in, or sorry, in South, South Africa, Africa with apartheid, it was illegal for his parents to be together. Mm. So it was like a secret, right? Mm. Like I said, in the United States in the 1960s, it was illegal. Some countries in the world, they're slowly starting to change their mindsets about this. So that means all these people are getting born, right? But they have to grow up. Like I said, when I was a kid, I didn't know anybody like me. Now I see a bunch in the younger generation that mm. are like me. So it just takes time. And it's also like you say you come from one group, but the fact that you've left and you've gone around the world, it's very likely that you're going to find somebody else with a similar mindset when you eventually do decide, if you do decide to have like a partner for life right. and get married, right? Yeah. You probably wouldn't go back to somebody who's never left their hometown you probably go to somebody who's like you, who's thinking about different stuff or somebody who's completely opposite from you and you realize that you can gain something right. from them in your life that you'll become an evolved person, right? And I think that over time with globalization, with airplanes and the way that everything's changing, that people are going to start to have more and more interracial, international couples, right? And then just like we said with Brazil, the way that Brazil spun out different than the United States was just because the families were mixed. Right, it's because the families were mixed yeah. right off the bat that everybody then became mixed afterwards. So then it wasn't a question about am I appropriating this? Does this belong to me? It's like no, everything belongs to everybody. Yeah, no, right? exactly. And, and I think if we do that globally, then it will start to take on that same kind of cultural cannibal mentality. Right. And also the idea of uh, and it's a concept in linguistic the purists, uh, which is a characteristic of someone who wants to keep tradition like a conservative. Uh, the cons conservator, mm -hmm. uh, well, conservative, uh, conservative, yeah. yeah. Um, um, a purist is someone who would want the French language, for example, to remain the same with the same rules, the mm -hmm. same spelling, and but there has to be changes now with social media. It's there are clear changes in the way we, and there's always been changes in the language. Mm -hmm. Is and it's not. A lack of protection, which is also something that's very present in Quebec, the concept of protecting the language. Mm. And there is the law 101 that attempts to protect the, the, the language, but the language belongs to the people who speak it. It does, you know, 
I understand the background of the, the you know, I told I said earlier, like the English people wanted the French to mm-hmm. speak English and it was a form of colonization. Um, so there was this intent, no, we protect our language and we need to reproduce and, you know, mm-hmm. have speak, people speak French and have our mentality. It's just that nowadays, it's fine. It's, it's okay. We, we got it. Like we mm-hmm. got our language, ain't gonna disappear. Mm-hmm. Having the French language, and I'm a French teacher, by the way. Um, maybe many people would throw rocks at me, but whatever. The French language in Quebec, I feel, is present and strong. Does not need extra protection, especially in a way where we attack other languages or cultures. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't need that, and the language will evolve because people evolve. If mm-hmm. we stay with our old ways, how can we move forward in this? In this whole idea, you know, that's I'm glad that you brought that up because that's actually what my art is about. So like in my art, I created an imaginary country called Quilombo. And it's basically like a cultural cannibalism experiment about a bunch of different tropical cultures. If they did that, if they came together and they really did, let's keep what's good and leave what isn't. And they put all their cultures on the table. What would spin out to be? What would it look like? Right. And so I think about that all the time. And when it comes to like issues of language, like language is always changing. Right, it's always going to move. Yeah, and and also with language, and we talked about this before. The the fact that when you know different languages, you have different ways to express ideas and concepts and symbols. Mm-hmm. And if you master a language, or if, even if you experience just a bit, you can, you might be a beginner in a language or an uh, emergent or capable. Uh, you might understand that this idea is better represent, better expressed in a language. So you, there's no problem in you expressing it because the, the purpose of communication is relations, is, mm. to, is that we understand each other. And that's what linguistic is about, uh, the descriptive grammar, la grammaire mm. descriptive, which opposed, opposes to grammaire normative, which is uh, bringing norms, respecting the norms. Mm-hmm. The descriptive grammar is about studying how the language uh, uh, is manifested, how, is it, how, how it's used without judging the way it's used. It's just okay. like, this is the phenomenon. Mm. And also in this, uh, in, in this part of linguistic studies, it's, uh, it's about, uh, sorry, I lost my, my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not judging the language and it's about understanding each other. It's not about respecting the rule. Mm-hmm. It's about I mean, oh, you say you say it that way. I understood your idea. Good. That's what mission Creoles accomplished. Are. Yeah, that's what Creoles are. You're talking about before about like the Creole from right. from Haiti, right? It's the same kind of thing. That's that's how they're made. Because I was thinking about the same thing when I created my my art. It was basically the idea that you have all these different fragmented cultures because of colonialism. So when I look at my side in Paraguay. Uh, they are a mixture of Spanish and Guadani, but there was other influences on top as well, like Irish and Italian. But the Guadani, a lot of the knowledge was lost. Everybody can still speak the language. That's a huge win for an indigenous mm. culture that they can have a national language and everybody speaks it, even people who are European. That's a huge win. There's not a lot of countries like that. But on the flip side, they don't really know a lot about their religion. There's like pieces of stories, mm. right? Um, we don't really necessarily know about how everything was day to day to live there in the jungle and in the, the, the Pampas before the Europeans came. We don't right. know about like different like agricultural styles. Like there's certain things that were lost. Uh, and then you look at other countries that maybe they still have those. They've kept up with all these different things. 
but they don't have their language anymore. So mm. basically what I wanted to do is I wanted to find all these fragmented, so these fragmented cultures that are like threatened with extinction or being just kind of lost, phased out. And by bringing them together and sewing them all up into a brand new thing, they become oh. this really strong entity because I look at Guadani, right? The Guadani language and the Guadani people, yes, they're their own entity, but if you compare them with like the Yoruba from Nigeria, you compare them with the Thai from Thailand, there's a lot of overlap hmm. about their experiences yeah. on earth, right? Understanding how the seasons work, understanding how certain plants can be used. There's a lot of overlap and they have stories that even though they're completely different names and the religion might be different, if you told that to the other culture, they're like, you know what? That story is awesome. <laughs> and I really like, oh, like a perfect example. The island of, of Kilombu. Yeah, another example like this is like, um, and what spurred me to do it is you look at the story of the Ramayana. So the Mahabharata is like the, the big Indian text, like their Bible, right? And then inside of that, you have like a bunch of different stories. And then you have one of them is the Ramayana. And the Ramayana is a story of, of Sita and Rama uh, who are married and Sita gets kidnapped to Lanka. And then Rama with Hanuman get together and they go back and they fight Ravana in Lanka and they, they kill him. And then Sita goes back and it's this big story, right? about like true love and about friendship and about altruism and all these different things. But as the Indians moved across into the Southeast Asia subcontinent and they moved this story with them, the story kept changing. Hmm. The characters kept changing. So if you look at the story of the Ramayana in India and then you look at the story of the Ramakien in Thai, same characters, same story, different way that it's presented, different climaxes, different motivations. Then you go to Bali and you look at their version of it. It's completely different as well. So Hanuman in India, he's brown. He's kind of like soft muscles, carries a giant mace. Thai, he's short, muscular, all white with spinny circles. Got a bare face, holds two sides. Hmm. The Bali one got giant ears, two sharp fangs. They go on both sides, a red face. Same character, but he's portrayed and shown in a different way that would match those people and the way that they interpret that story. And this is the, one of the most famous stories in the world, right? And you can't look at the Ramakian and say, that's cultural appropriation. It's not your story type, people. Stop saying that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's their number one story. Yeah. The number one. And it comes from India. And we also think about Jesus and the Bible yeah, yeah, and was, stuff, right? I was going to say, cultural appropriation, right? religion, yeah. Exactly. So it's like, are, are all Christians just cultural appropriating the Middle East, you know, and their stories? Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a great thing yeah. to think about. But for me, with my art, it's just like, we all are fragmented as people and as societies. And the only way we're ever going to find truth and the only way we're ever going to evolve is if we, we sew up our ideas together. And we bring our ideas together for bigger ideas that affect all of us. Because if we keep them all separated and they're just for us and they're secret and all this different things about pride, and we're, we're never ever going to achieve any kind of utopia or peace amongst us, right? right? Yeah, it's... Uh, and... and we all have our sciences or like our field for me it's um linguistics and communication it the first thing to do and i said this in another episode as well like the first thing to do to achieve this first step listen mm -hmm. and listen is not just uh, hearing them like listening with your ears it's listen the feelings listen to the image listen mm -hmm. to to the eyes of someone, listen to their nonverbal communication. Be in a present in a in a posture of reception, because if that's 
skipped as a step, you're, you're killing the process. Mm -hmm. Then there cannot be an understanding. Um, and then it's going to be one imposing something on the other. And then the relationship, relationship of power mm -hmm. gets installed and then you cannot sew together. You cannot yep. <laughs> do the work together. Mm -hmm. um, thank you so much for sharing all of that. There is um, a discussion, I hope, between you and I will keep going. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even if we're not going to be in the same uh, geographic space. And maybe you can help me think about to brand it as a new name. Because I always felt cultural cannibalism is an idea that most people understand deep in their heart. The problem is the word cultural cannibal just sounds very kind of loaded and a little bit like negative, right? I've heard other people say culture vulture, which is just as bad. So I always wonder like, is there a new word that could be used that can take that concept so people can understand it, that they can translate well? Uh, haven't found it yet. <laughs> um, but it's been a hundred years since that word was coined, so it can change. Because earlier I wrote uh, three words together. I, I wrote uh, cannibal, appropriation and chameleon but chameleon mm -hmm. doesn't doesn't do that well because it's not about changing uh, is is it about changing color or or, or literally mixing yeah. like you know it not almost, be like water and oil being like yeah. uh, i'm trying to juices I'm, i've been trying to think a lot of like is there like a certain like animal or like an event that that captures it right like it's like, yeah, it's like a chameleon, an octopus, like octopus being able to change and like thought. move into different stuff. Like that's a true one. Because but it's more about like, mm. it's more about like when it eats it, it becomes a different thing. <laughs> well, I it's just, almost like that. It, it's almost, the closest thing is almost like a Pokemon and like <laughs> it's coming to its final form. <laughs> right. Like it's almost like that, like slowly changing to your final, final form. But I haven't found that right symbol yet. There's this uh, character in X-Men, uh, I don't know her name, the, the blue character that uh, can literally change into someone, someone okay. else. She, she, she can become anyone mm. and anything that's living basically. Um, but it's, there's it's something that absorbs a representation, a symbol that, that uh, shows absorbing because mm. Because the whole process is like, you don't just go, oh, I like this, I'm going to become it. It's like, there's an intent and then there's like the hours and the days and the months behind actually actively learning it. So like the idea, like that one guy went to Japan. It's not like he just went there and became a sumo wrestler. He went there and did everything that he could to become that. And slowly over time, he left behind his old self and he evolved into that, hmm. that new person. Right. But it was about like, you throw yourself into it and you just absorb it all. Um, hmm. that's a good mission that we have there <laughs> okay the DYB phase of the podcast the okay. DYB questions which are the do you believe questions okay this comes from our dear Bamlak okay who um, approached uh, one of our boarding staff one day and started shooting like do you believe in this do you believe in that okay and Bamlak was in the ideation of the podcast here uh, and I asked her if I could steal this idea, okay. <laughs> appropriate this idea for the podcast, and she agreed. So shout out to Bamlak. <laughs> uh, thank you for letting us do that. So I'm going to ask you, I don't know, two, two, three, or four do you believe questions. Okay. They're random-ish. 
Okay. Do I explain why I believe it or not? Yes, it's not okay. just yes or no. It's right. uh, develop your answer. Okay. Do you believe in school? Like the idea of school? Like having school? Yeah, I believe in school. Like school is important. Maybe this way that we run schools is not finished, that idea. Like we need to, we need to work on a lot. But yeah, obviously believe in the idea of school. People need to become educated. There's a lot of information you need to survive. <laughs> Do you believe in holidays? Yeah, I mean like time off. Like you got to be able to, to relax. There was celebrations. Yeah, I believe in holidays. I definitely believe that holidays are a regular thing, not a, like a sporadic once in a while type of thing. Yeah, holidays every week. You know. Do you believe in internet? Do I believe in the internet? I've been trying to figure out how this thing works. First of all, I have no idea how they have these cables that are in the ocean that run the internet. I still don't believe this. When I see maps about all the different cables that are running to work the internet around the world and all the different sources where they keep all the information, these buildings, I still don't really understand. I don't even know about it. How this works? Yeah. Like we saw a map and who even knows if it's true, but there's like cables that run underneath the ocean connecting all the different continents, right? Like hardline cables. I'd always thought it was satellites, right? But the internet is real. And they always talk about like they have rooms that have the servers in them, right? And they just had like an attack on Amazon, what, a couple weeks ago where they attacked the servers and the whole website went down. So the internet's like a physical thing. I'm still trying to get my head around it, how it works physically. Like, have you heard about like Bitcoin? They say Bitcoin actually uses a lot of carbon because they have mm. to like mine them where they have computers fighting against other computers and they use up a bunch of energy. I don't understand how that works. I'm going to take that as somewhat as a fact because I read it in the news, but I do believe in the internet theoretically. There's um, the the concept that an email now like not um, a sustainable way of using internet is to not overload folders on a drive or send too many emails mm. because it uses energy and so in the end it impacts the environment in That's a certain crazy. way. Because we always thought that it would be a way that would help us. Yeah. Like, you know, we'll save paper. It's like, actually, this is a way worse than paper. <laughs> Maybe, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Because we overuse it, of course, as we do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, do you believe in the five senses? For me, because I can have all of them. Yeah. But I think there's other senses as well, right? Like intuition is a sense, I feel. Right. Being able to to realize what's going on, um, being able to analyze a situation and feel when something has changed. I think that's a sense that we ignore. Right. Because you're talking about senses related to your brain. Right. So hear, see, smell, taste, touch. Right. All of that. But I feel like our brain is doing much more than just that. And we sense the world through much more than just the tactile stuff. I mean, you got to think about people who let's say they might be they might be deaf, they might be blind at the same time, they're experiencing the world as well. So what do they experience that we don't, right? There's other animals, right, that they, they, they're just completely blind, but they experience the world, every single one of them, and their species is blind, but they experience the world. So their brain must have some other level to sense these things, right? Um, and I definitely feel like we, that intuition, like is a sixth sense uh, that we, we don't talk about enough, but yeah, I believe in the senses. And extending that question, because you talked about the, the brain, 
Is, do you think that there's things that our brains cannot capt that are present and very tangible, but not in our definition of what tangible is? Sure. Like, for example, like memory, like most people's memories are really broken. Like, um, our, <laughs> our, our, we, we have a really hard time. Like we can remember stuff that's very like in pivotal moments in our life. We feel like we remember them well, but I remember in anthropology because my degree is in anthropology, my, my undergrad, and we did like tests on like, how does your memory work in doing memory reconstruction? And one of the ones was like, you have to like draw a blueprint of your house when you were a child and you slowly go through a series of questions to build out your memory of your childhood. And as you build your memory of your childhood, there are certain moments that start to pop up. Maybe like something happened on your ninth birthday that was really, really important you remember it. But then we were asked to go back and try to connect with as many people from that moment and ask them what happened. And virtually every time I did this, I misremembered important moments in my life where I thought I had it all laid out. Mm. And then my mom would tell me, actually, that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. And I realized that I amalgamated experiences in my head, that I had taken a couple different experiences and I sewed them into one experience so I can remember it. But in reality, that's not how it was at all. Also, the fact that your brain changes as you get older, yeah. how you perceive adulthood as a 12-year-old and how you perceive adulthood as a 37-year-old are completely different. So you go back and you analyze moments of where adults were fighting or they made some really big decisions and how you felt in that moment. And then you think about it now as an adult looking back and you're like, oh, actually, I would perceive that totally different now right, exactly. if I went back. Now I know that experience of being an adult, I wouldn't be so judgmental about their choice or something like that. Um, so I feel for humans, memory is one of our weak spots. And when you meet people who have, let's say, neuro, uh, neurodiversity, right? They're, they're atypical in the way that they think, you know, people who are on the spectrum and stuff like that. Some of them have an ability with memory where they don't necessarily understand what's going on in the short term, but their long-term memory is like flawless. And this is, I feel like, one aspect of the brain overcompensating for not having one sense, hmm. but then going and overloading another sense. And that shows an example about, yeah, like you said, there's parts of our brains that we do not use And you can see this in different individuals. You're like, well, you can hear something one time and remember it forever. Right. Um, and in that way, that's definitely a flexibility of the brain that we don't all have mm. yet. <laughs> very interesting. Um, yeah, very nice answer. And and I what what I wanted to to say about the um, the way we th we we remember things. Um, The, the narratives that we build and we can go like a long way about that discussion but uh, I just want to mention here without going into details that I, I'm doing a personal work right now where I reevaluate a narrative that I built about my life mm -hmm. because turning 30 soon makes me realize well I've, I've, I've done work before about it mm. and but it's like 10 years ago No, I need to revisit what, what it means to me, this narrative that I kind of agreed on when I was mm -hmm. 20. Uh, but I, there's missing parts. There is uh, something that's missing in my understanding now. Mm -hmm. and, and I can't just leave it there. I can't just say, oh, that's what it is. That's what it's going to be for the rest of my life. The example you gave of uh, experiencing um, something when you're seven, you see your parents fight, for example, and then you're 37 and then you have a fight with your with your partner mm -hmm. and um, you're like, okay, I felt maybe like maybe it was a, a traumatic experience, but now I understand that the way we're doing it, it's not traumatic. It's just there's more explanation. There's more mm -hmm. things to understand about it. So 
the trauma I think I I held, maybe there's some recon. Maybe I'm just saying, like mm. if there's a work being done, maybe it can lead to reconciliation. Yeah. yeah, I did that. I did a similar kind of thing whenever I was 30 because I had a narrative in my life that I was Brazilian because that was the the easy thing for me to do when I was a kid was just identify as Brazil because my dad was in Paraguay. I didn't know anything about Paraguay as a kid growing up. He wasn't there to explain it to me. There were no Paraguayans around and I didn't know anything about Spanish. And my mom's American and I grew up in the United States, but I don't look like my mom in a lot of ways and I don't identify in the same way as her. Uh, so Brazil was my country because that was the one that they met in. And they had spun the story for me that I was Brazilian in a poetic way. So like, I'm American, your dad's Paraguayan, and you're Brazilian. And so as a kid, I absorbed that. By the time I actually figured out that I was half Paraguayan, half American with roots in Brazil, I had already told everybody I was Brazilian. And I kept that lie going on, or not that lie, but that perspective going on all the way until I was like 30. People ask me where you're from, I'm from Brazil. And even sometimes now people ask me where you're from, from Brazil, because It's easy because a lot of times I don't want to explain my background, why I'm mixed. If you're Brazilian, it's kind of like, oh, you expect it to look mixed. And then also people don't know where Paraguay is. I don't really want to explain every time where's Paraguay, you know, and like what Paraguay is like. Um, and so, yeah, I had to do that when my son was born, kind of like let go of this. People are like, where are you from? I'm like, I'm from, okay, I'm born in the United States to an American and Paraguayan and I have roots in Brazil and I identify <laughs> as Brazilian in a lot of ways for these reasons. And I had to be like more long-winded about it. Uh, and it wasn't awesome to go back and redo that narrative. I had to go back and re-explain myself to people who already knew me really well. And then mm. explain like, actually, I'm not... You always said you were Brazilian, man. Why'd you lie? It's like, well, I wasn't lying. It's just easier to explain the poetic nature of who I am yeah. rather than the real version of who I am in a short way, right? Because I don't want to have a dialogue with people about my identity the first time I meet them every time. Mm, yeah, It's no, exactly. tedious. And, and also there's a question that, that I changed in my vocabulary in casual uh, meetings if I meet someone. And that's how we ask it in the podcast here. I'm not asking you where are you from. I'm asking mm. where did you grow up? Or like, do you want to say where you grew up? And it allows either a simple answer if you want to keep it simple and true. Mm -hmm. But it also keeps the space for more explanation. Oh, I, w I was born there. No, no, no. If you want to go, like, if you yeah. want to go there, you could have, where did you grow up in the States? Yeah. Which like, is true. Yeah, yeah. It's true. It was, it was okay. Hill, right. But then, like, somebody says, like, where are you from? I don't feel comfortable saying I'm from the United States because I don't feel exactly. like when I say that, I'm giving the people the right frame of mind to understand who I am as a person. Exactly. And, and I'm, I wanted to change that question because of the context of international schools where, you know, a kid who's, uh, who has two passports, UK and Italy, never lived in both countries, spent most time in uh, Tanzania, for example, and lived also in Thailand. And, you know, so the question is too complex. Where did mm -hmm. you grow up? I grew up in Tanzania. Good. Like, that's your experience. Um, yeah, and, and that's um, something that when we live it, it's it's worth reconsidering vocabulary, which is for me the second step after listening, mm. adjusting vocabulary because it's a, it's a sign of respect, I think. Mm. Last uh, last DYB question: okay. What do you believe in? What do I believe in? Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, I believe in passion and I believe in poetry. So I have one of the talk about memories, probably misremembered this whole experience, but I had a very pivotal moment in my life 
when I was 24 and I was in Brazil. I was living in Rio and I was living in a favela and we had like this kind of like house where a bunch of us were kind of like volunteering and helping these kids and it was a mixture of different artists and musicians. It was me, uh, my friend from Cape Verde in Africa, my friend from, from Rio from that favela, another friend also from that favela and then an American friend uh, and we were all together and we had had a very strange day. So we'd had a day that was like as big of a roller coaster day as you can imagine with being like ups and downs and like very traumatic moments and very like outstanding moments all happening at the same day. And it was just up and down and up and down. And we ended up having this big conversation in the courtyard in front of our little house in the favela at around like three o'clock in the morning. We just come back from like a night out and we were trying to process that day. Just process all of it. And one of us said something like, so what do you guys think? Good day or bad day? Today, good day or bad day? And we were just really lucid and we had this fantastic talk about life and just that. Because like, we, had, we had seen somebody possibly die that day. So we were like, well, what's the, what's the point of life, right? Like, if, if we're all just going to die, right? Like, what's the point of this? And like... If we realize that it's all about suffering, if we take that Buddhist point of view, like life is suffering and everybody's going to die. So why don't we just kill ourselves? Right. Like then you can go on your own terms. But then we all like went around and we're like, well, I don't want to kill myself. You want to kill yourself? No. Why? Like, why don't we want to kill ourselves? Hmm. Like we know we're going to die, but somehow we still want to go through all this pain. We know we're going to have all these pains. And so then we, we still like, we wanted to really dig down to the bones of it. Why do we want to live? Why don't we want to kill ourselves? And we basically came up with these two words, which were passion and poetry. So the passion one was just like, we, we thought as we shared our experiences that the whole point of life was like, I'm going to find what I like about living and I'm going to go crazy about that thing. So whatever that thing is that attracts me, I'm going to make that kind of like my purpose for life. So for a lot of us, that was like our art. It was like the way that we, was like, I like to be an artist. I like it. Like, I just like experiencing the world through this way. I like that people perceive me as an artist. I like to produce art. Out of all the options I could do in life, this one feels to be the most rewarding. And that's my passion. But if I was into guitars, I would feel the exact same way, right? Or if I was into surfing, I'd feel the exact same way. If I was into medicine, I'd feel the exact same way. So like whatever you're nerdy about, whatever really like gets you going, that's what you're alive for. And like throw yourself in that. And if you're not doing that, you're, you don't have a point to be alive, right? And we even talked about, and we had some of the conversations like, well, what if you're not in a situation where you don't get the choice, right? Everything around you, like you're, you're a prisoner, you don't have any choices. Or like, well, that's the, this, the motivation to break free. That's the, that, that passion. It may take forever, but that's the reason you're alive is to get that thing. Even if you only get it the last day of your life, that's the, that's the thing why you're alive. So we realized passion is one of the things that we live for. And the other one was poetry. And the poetry one is the one I connect with a lot more because it was like, we realized that we also had a conversation like we shared all of our worst experiences. Like what was the worst day of your life? What was the worst thing that you ever went through? And we shared all of our pains like bad relationships, you know, violence, uh, horrible situations where everything is lost, sharing all these things. And then we shared like if you could go back, you could erase it. Would you do it? And all of us were like, no. Nah. We're like, well, why? Like. It's like, because like, even though like I might've got beat a lot of, as a kid or something, I'm very proud that it made me strong today and like that people can't break me today. And I don't want to trade that 
I like having that virtue of myself that I can't be broken. I don't like how it happened, but I like who I am today. So I'll take that. And it's the same thing like Romeo and Juliet. Like Romeo and Juliet, is that a, is that a tragedy or is that like a beautiful story? Like in the end, they both died. It's like, yeah, but they have a story about their life because it's that awesome. It's a story. And we realize like, you know what? In the end of my life, I don't care if my, my poems all end tragically. If they're so interesting that people want to hear about them, if they can be made into a movie or a book, then I had a great life. So I'll take the good poetry and the bad poetry. As long as my life is poetic, then it's a life. But if it's not poetic, what is it for? If I'm not living my life trying to get that passion, then what is it for? And so what I believe in is from that moment, that conversation, I've always believed it. I have a tattooed on the inside of my arms. It's right here in Portuguese. It says paixão. And then the other side over here, it says poesia. So passion and poetry. So I never forget it. It's just like, that's the reason you're alive. If at any point you lose the passion of the poetry, find it. <clears throat> if you'll allow it, I will absorb your answer. I will listen to it again and absorb it in a way where I can live according to these words, that passion, which are not just words, they're ways of li living and seeing the world. Passion and poetry. That'd be awesome. <laughs> thank you for sharing this. Yeah, thanks for letting me share. In which uh, language do we say thank you? Do you want to say thank you? Uh, I live in Thailand a long time, so. Kap Kun Kap. Kap Kun Kap. Thank you.